May the Lord give you more than just a piece of paper at the end of your life. I hear you, God. Your voice rumbles like thunder. Yes. I, um, there's so many thoughts going through my mind right now, but I'm going to just do a, sort of a segue. I'm going to be preaching from Luke chapter 6. And um, maybe this is a day for remembering, but in Luke 6, there's a text there. There's just three little verses that I want to look at, and I want to talk about protecting children. In fact, I want to talk about protecting all children. And this comes out of a direction and a pressure from the Spirit that began months ago, probably near the first of the year. In fact, at the beginning of this year, and we're in May now, so five months, I've been reading a book. And this book is on bioethics and how that the church needs to begin to speak into the heart and mind of culture and also uh, lawmakers to help them to understand the Judeo-Christian values and ethics uh, of human existence and human life. And particularly as it pertains to the body, because most of the time the church is talking about the spirit and the things of eternal nature, but the church also recognizes because there was a physical resurrection of Jesus, because Jesus physically healed bodies, that we ought to always remember that we are embodied spirits. And there should be rightly a dignity that is placed on human life that is regarded with great fear and honor. So I began this book, and it's a tough read for me. Uh, the, the, the guy, he's not writing technically, but it's just deep for me, and I've just been working on it for a while. So months ago, I had no idea that we would be in between uh, celebrating uh, Sawyer's life, him coming into the world just three weeks ago, and then uh, Sadie's life, just coming into uh, this world last Sunday on Mother's Day. I told you, someone has to be born on Mother's Day, and Sadie was. And uh, I, I told Rachel, I said, Rachel, only you could turn Mother's Day into Labor Day. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, so we've had, we've had two added to our already seven precious grandchildren. And uh, don't ask me their names. I just point, you know. But... I love them, and, and it's, it's kind of like weird that I'd be talking about this today because we've had these two wonderful celebrations, but yet it's fitting. When I began reading this book, and he began talking about how convoluted and how all the streams of philosophy and history that went into the 1973 decision, January 2020, Second, uh, 1973, the, the Roe versus Wade decision. When he began talking about that, my mind went back in time, and I remembered that in the mid-70s, I visited Mount, Mount Union, Pennsylvania, and uh, we were there for a Creation Festival. Creation Festival used to be, and still is, 
um, kind of like a Christian Woodstock, you know. So like everybody gathers together to camp together and there's wonderful music, there's wonderful worship, and there's wonderful preaching. And I don't know why that's going on, but I'm going to jump over to the other mic. If you don't mind, I think we're just going to put this one aside. Hold on. Here we go. So as I'm thinking and remembering um, Creation Festival, there was this young man who was introduced. His name is Keith Green. And he was the headline, headlining uh, musician that night. I heard him for the first time. And I had been hearing his music filter from the West Coast to the East Coast in the mid-'70s. And this young man got up to play the piano, and he was introduced with a lot of hype and because he was an amazing musician. And when he sat down at the piano, he started to play the piano, and, and he stopped everything. Gary, you would love this. He starts tinkering with the microphones and the piano. He ignores this crowd of 50 or 60,000 people, starts setting the microphone, starts adjusting things, and he starts playing, and it's still not right, so he adjusts it again. And I'm thinking to myself, either this guy is like really, really good, or he's an idiot, you know, and, and, and he's just, you know, OCD or something. When he got everything set, he exploded into a song. And for an hour or more, he just took us away on a field trip to heaven. It was amazing. What a wonderful, amazing night that was, and that was locked in my memory. And less than 10 years later, I would be back, and the headlining speaker, now they had had Tony Campolo and uh, many, many tremendous speakers, but, but the headlining speaker this particular year was uh, Melody Green, Keith Green's wife. In that short 10 years, Keith Green had died in a, tragic airplane crash with two of his children. And she was there just moments, almost, after. Is, you know, a year or so after the crash. She was left with two children. She lost two children and her husband left with two children. And she got up and she began to speak. And she began to speak about abortion. And when she did, I thought, of all the things you could talk about, you know, most of us are wondering, like, how do you process such loss? How do you process that? How do you manage to live past such tragedy, you know? But the thought that she shared that night still resonates in my spirit today. She said, I was fortunate enough to be left with two children. She said, God took two of mine, but left me with two. And she said, I've got to tell you something that I know that these girls will grow up one day and they'll ask me, how did you let Roe versus Wade happen? How did you handle that? What did you do? How, what did you do? How could you be a passionate Christian and not do something about that horrible decision? 
an owl. <clears throat> you know, her children are probably in their 40s now, you know. And I'm sure they have asked those questions. But the question she would, turned around and asked everybody else is, I'm going to do everything I can do. What can, what can you do? And that thing still resonates in my ear. So there's a lot of nostalgia going on. And you know that a guy's getting older when he starts thinking and remembering stories. But when I started reading this book, I, my mind was transported back to that, that amazing event, both by seeing her husband and the amazing gift and talent and ability he had, and then his amazing wife who just came and poured her heart out and begged people to save children. And I'm here today to ask you to save children. I believe that all children, not only my children and your children, but I believe that all children around the world should have a, I'm going to use the term that was invented in the Roe versus Wade decision, a fundamental right. Fundamental right to privacy doesn't exist anywhere in our Constitution. It was made up. It was assumed. But when you use the word fundamental in a legal sense, it's like you can't undo this. It's like you have to. Now the burden is like to come up with what is called a compelling, a compelling reason to even consider undoing what has been done. Essentially, one man dreamed this horrible thing up. And other justices went along with him. And it wasn't through the normal appellate courts and all of that. And that's a story for another day. But I believe with all my heart that every child has a fundamental right to be safe, to be protected. Don't you? Those who are born, those who are pre-born, girls and boys, all races, all children, everywhere, every child has the fundamental right of protection from conception to their adulthood and beyond. Human children require much greater support, much greater instruction, much more patience and time to develop. They're more dependent than any other species on the planet but their capacity to create, to imagine, to dream, to flourish, and to reflect the glory and the honor of God surpasses any other creature on the, on the earth. My purpose today is not any way, shape, or form motivated by pressure from anyone or political upheaval and stuff we're going through right now. My purpose today is to call the church, the whole church, to adopt Jesus Christ's heart and his attitude for children, namely that those that the society oftentimes regard as the least in importance become the greatest in priority to Christ and to his kingdom. Let me read it again. My purpose today is to call the church, the whole church, to adopt Jesus Christ's 
heart and his attitude for children, namely that those whom society regards as least in importance really is actually greatest priority to Christ and to his kingdom. And with that, I want to take you to Luke chapter 6. And I think that uh, Carrie will probably get those on the screen for you there. Luke chapter 9, I'm sorry, Luke 9 and verse 46, 47, 48. As you're turning, as you're looking, I just want to remind you that of these three verses, there's only one verse in red. So there's a problem, we call it an argument. There's uh, something then that turns into uh, an exposing of an attitude. And then the, when we get to the verse in red, then, it, then all of a sudden there's a priority. And that priority is the priority that you and I need to adopt today. So first of all, let's talk about the argument. But I want to read these verses to you slow and with intention. Because I really want them to seek, sink down. In fact, a couple of verses earlier, Jesus said something to the disciples and he said, I want this to sink down deep into your ears. I want these verses to sink down deep into our ears today. And I'll tell you why. It's not because, you know, I think that I can say something today and you guys will go out and somehow reverse Roe versus Wade. I don't have that much hope right now I do have faith it's really really bad law and there's going to be a law student one day who's going to actually wake up and say God how did you ever get that from that and going to be honest and say that needs to be fixed that's going to happen sometime but I'm more concerned about you and me that we start to adopt we start if we don't realize how easily we can drift away from orthodox views uh, in a time like this when, when everything's up for grabs. It's just so easy to drift away from an orthodox view, and I, I just think we need to return to it and hold on to it because I believe that Jesus is returning for a church that is without spot and without wrinkle. By the way, the verse that he gave me all week, I've just been, everywhere I go, I've been just saying this verse, quoting it to people everywhere I go. It's uh, first ch chapter of Song of Solomon, the woman who has been loved by such an amazing love, and this is kind of the answer to Judy's little statement a while ago, the, 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 the kind of love that she has experienced from her husband is the kind of love that is so unequal. And she says, in frustration, because her her. Her brothers made her work in the vineyard. They made her work in the fields. And she became tanned and darkened by the sun, which was in her culture, uh, you know, equivalent to being mistaken for a slave or a servant. And, and the honor and the dignity that she wanted to have was not equal because she wanted to present herself to her husband as something of an equal, and she just, in exasperation, she says, I'm dark, but lovely. I'm going to just tell you, if you don't realize it, 
you are dark, I'm dark. There's still a lot of darkness hiding in our hearts. But we're loved with a greater love. He loves us not because we're lovely. He loves us with a love that makes us lovely. So ladies, do what Judy did. Keep kissing your toads. One day they'll turn into a prince. I'm dark but lovely. I actually said that one place this week and the guy got it. One of the guys got it. He really understood. Yeah. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. We probably could just go home and think about that. An argument. These are Jesus' best friends. Who's the greatest? Verse 47, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood the child by him or by his side. They're arguing who's greatest. Jesus takes a child, stands him beside Jesus, puts him arm, his arm around him like a dad would, you know. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. I know that it's an upside-down kingdom, but actually maybe it's the earth that is upside down. When Jesus turned the tables over in the temple, maybe he was turning the tables the right way and the world was upside down. Sometimes I'm just not sure which end is up. But I believe with all my heart that the profound simplicity of this text can just blow right past most people's mind. You know, because most of us just look at it and say, okay, well, you know, children are innocent and children are, um, well, childlike. And Jesus was just trying to show them, don't be proud, be childlike, and, you know. And miss the complete point that from heaven's viewpoint, the greatest person in the room is often the person we least expect. I want to unpack that. There's an argument. But what's the cause of the argument? It's his chosen closest friends, the 12 apostles on whom Jesus would rest his church. They were arguing. Oh, my gosh. Shocking. We are dark. <laughs> Which one of them was greatest or which one would be the greatest? Okay, now this is ridiculous because, first of all, if I was Jesus, I would look at them and say, listen, if you think you're the greatest, you're a knucklehead. You're not. 
Anyone in this room who thinks they're the greatest, you automatically disqualified yourself. All right. Jesus, his heart's not dark like mine. I want you to consider a couple of things here real quick is that three of these men, Peter, James, and John, they had just seen Jesus transfigured on the mountaintop. Okay? Those three should not be arguing about anything. If anything, they should be saying, did we really see that? I mean, I, you know, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, just resplendent glory. Like, what are we like? Whale snot, you know? I mean, you know. Um, so three of them shouldn't even have entered into the argument, but I know they were. The other nine couldn't drive out one demon, and therefore Jesus was called upon to cast out that demon. They should have had a clue right then and there. If nine of us can't, throw, uh, can't uh, cast out one demon and Jesus does it with nothing, then who's the greatest in the room? I mean, really. When the church gathers in Jesus' name, who's the greatest one in the room? It's always Jesus. Always Jesus. Jesus had just told them that he was going to suffer and to die for them. Who's the greatest? Shouldn't be a question. Shouldn't be a question. Jesus should always be recognized and honored when the church gathers as the greatest in the room. Every time, without fault. I was telling Noah, my grandson, a little joke. So Sunday school teacher goes into classroom of kids and she doesn't think she's going to be accepted well. She's a substitute teacher and she's just trying to get their attention. She said, I was just wondering, guys, uh, if anyone could tell me what that little gray fuzzy thing with the little fuzzy tail in your backyard jumping around, what is that thing called? And no one says a thing. She says, oh, come on, you know what it is. Right before winter, they're always gathering up nuts, always taking them and hiding in different places. Looks at the kids, and the kids go, no, come on, you know what that thing is. Little tiny critter, fluffy tail, jumping around, gathering up nuts, runs up and down trees sideways and around, swirling around trees like nothing. What is that thing called? Finally, a little brave boy in the back raises his hand. And he says, look, teacher, I know that the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> the answer is always Jesus. Always. Who's the greatest one in the room? It's always Jesus. But there was not only an argument, there was an attitude. What was the attitude? It's interesting that Jesus knew, just standing there, as they're arguing, he just looks out of the corner of his eye, and, you know, he knows what they're arguing about. You know, these 12 had been sent out to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to proclaim the kingdom everywhere he was about to go. And they had come back very successful in ministry, so I guess that they had a little bit of that going on yet. And so they're kind of wondering, you know, who's going to be the greatest among them. But inside his heart, he knew that there was an attitude that was prevailing, not just in them, but in the culture. And they all just 
They didn't even question it. It was just, it was just the way it was. For example, here's one thing. Uh, if there is anyone in society in Jesus' day who is lower than a slave, it would be women and children in that order. I, it, it, it does baffle me how long it's taken us to recognize and honor women. I'm not sure that we've ever done it for children. But all that aside, I just want to tell you that what Jesus does in one verse, in one little verse, in one little action, so he's got just, he just does an object lesson, brings the boy beside him, the little child beside him, and then, and then says one verse, and in that he just exposes their heart. And I believe, you know, we can expose our hearts. You know, um, the underlying philosophy that um, motivated Justice Blackman, who was the Chief Justice, 1973. There were a couple of cases that had been sort of groundbreaking, but when he looked into the Fourth Amendment and then two other amendments to try to find a way to provide abortion rights for people in Texas um, and then subsequently in the, the rest of the country, um, the, 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 the philosophy that was undergirding him is called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. There's a sheet on it that I've put a summary in the back on the table, and you can look at that. Just, just view it. I'm not going to go into much detail just to tell you. It's basically that whole me generation stuff. Like, in other words... The, the lowest common denominator that all of us have together is that we're Americans. And as Americans, we have fundamental rights. And with these fundamental rights, then one of the rights is to be yourself and be on your own and no one to tell you what to do anything. You can't tell me what to do. Basically, we have the fundamental right to just do whatever we want. So the outcry of the 1960s free love, free sex was a lot of pregnancies. So in the 70s, in my generation, the outcry was we need casual sex, but then we also need to have no consequence for sex. So what we need is a way that we can be whoever we want to be with, whoever we want to be with, without any kind of attachment or strings attached or any kind of obligation and um, we cannot have the consequence of, pre of pregnancy, you know, the consequence of human intercourse often, as you know, ends in, in pregnancy. That, that's where they come from, by the way, if you didn't know that. The babies come from people having sex with each other. Well, heterosexual people. Do I have to define it? I mean, you know. The, the point is, is, is this, that, that there was a generation that was wanting something, and it was less and less regulation. Actually, what it was is less and less of the church and the Judeo-Christian value and ethic controlling 
the prevailing culture of what was normal and expected of people. So if you did find yourself in a compromised situation and you found yourself pregnant, you know that the used to be the decent and honorable thing to do would be to certainly not punish the child, but to, you know, change all your plans and get married. I know that didn't always work out, but it was the decent and honorable thing to do. And a lot of people did, but then all of a sudden when marriages didn't work and a lot of divorce is on the rise and increase, then the culture wanted no consequence for any kind of sexuality. And the consequence we're talking about is babies. So the fallout of the 1973 decision has been an estimated 48 million children aborted to date. Almost 50 million children aborted. 30,000 a year in our state of Pennsylvania. 30,000 a year. Over half of them are at the behest of planned parenthood. Interesting little side fact that Planned Parenthood invested millions of dollars in Governor Wolf's election. And he rewarded them with $3 million this week. By the way, you should vote this week. There were 1,700 children aborted in our state during a government mandated shutdown of all elective surgeries. 1,700. When you, you couldn't, <laughs> I won't go there. <laughs> By the way, Governor Wolf was an escort for Planned Parenthood in his earlier years. Um, our hearts get exposed by the teachings of Jesus, and it makes people feel uncomfortable. So what we try to do is to change the norms or whatever, you know, so we can all feel comfortable with one another. So, I mean, this is like the opposite of I'm dark and lovely. This is more like I'm lovely, and it doesn't matter what dark is, you know. It's something altogether different. So Jesus took a child and he speaks to them, and when he speaks to them, he says, any of you who receives this child in my name receives me. Now, I know that that fools the church because we think that when we go in the name of Jesus, we're going in his authority. And that's still what he means, but it's, it's a different kind of way now. Let me uh, break it down for you. Jesus said, you know, that the person who received him, the, the persons who would receive Jesus actually don't just receive him, uh, they receive the one who sent him. So if you receive Jesus, you've, resent the you've, you've received the Father. I mean, so in other words, if you accept Jesus, you've accepted the Father. Does that work? If I reject Jesus, I reject the Father. Okay, why is that? Well, because Jesus was God's gift to the world, and he came as a child. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him to have eternal life. You know, so if God so loves the world and his answer to loving the world who is going to a lostness, an eternity without the love of God. If they were living their lives disconnected, always in the broken situation that Stephanie described a while ago when she looked at the man who is using alcohol to cope and his brokenness and feeling disconnected from the universe. It's actually disconnected from God, disconnected from love. All we need to do is to receive Jesus. If we receive Jesus, then we will receive the Father And the Father will be blessed and honored because we received his gift. Greatest gift he had to give, Jesus. I can't imagine what's in the heart of the Father if you reject his gift. I just can't imagine. I don't want to go there. If you just look at Jesus and his sacrifice for us and just say, no thanks. I just can't imagine that. I can't imagine a father allowing his son to die for the sins of the world and die for people and someone to say, no, thank you. I'm, you know, I'm good. So Jesus, taking that analogy, you have to work it backwards and say, okay, so if you receive a child, then you've received it from Jesus, from the father. And you have received a gift. If you reject the child, you reject the gift. Because when God wants to bless the world, he always sends children. When he wants to change things, when he wants to order things, even when we look in the scriptures in Moses' day, we can look at his day. We can look at David's day. We can look at Samuel. We'll look at Jesus all the time. When God was ready to do something new, when he wanted to bless the world, he always sent a child. So if, if, if you, <clears throat> the, 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 the idea is that if I reject the gift that Jesus has given me, then I've rejected The father who sent him with the gifts. But if I accept the gift, then I accept Jesus. This is not how you get saved is by receiving children. It's the gift that he's given us. So that's what it means when he says, if you receive this child in my name, I gave it to you. I gave you a gift. If I give you a gift... Listen, I, I got to just kind of do this disclaimer. I tell people all the time, and it's, it's really hard to hear, but it's, it's just a matter of um, correct theology, is that there, there's all kinds of intercourse going on around the world at any given time, and not at every one of those acts are in the will and the purpose of God. Just not. A lot of them aren't. But even when they aren't, When God gives a child, that child is in the will of God, even if the action was not in the will of God. Let's not go into rape and incest and all that. It just convolutes it. And, and I, you know, my, my heart aches and the pain over that, that whole issue alone. And Judy and I have counseled people all the time. And, you know, I, 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 it, it's so deep and... It, but it, 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 oftentimes it clouds the issue 
And I just want to say this, that, that really when we start talking about rape and incest, we're talking about another version of parental protection. The question isn't where was God when someone was being raped? The question is where were the responsible people who have guardianship over these children and over these people? Where are they? That's the question. The question is really not what was God doing. He delegated authority to parents to watch over their children and protect them and see that they're uh, kept safe. And even the best parents do everything they can, and it still happens sometimes. I understand that. But even if the act was wrong, the gift was right. Thank you. I said, even if the act was wrong, the gift was right. And the baby said, aw. He took a child, stands him beside him. If you receive this child in my name, you receive me. If you reject the child, I'm assuming you've rejected him. If you receive Jesus, you receive not just Jesus, but the one who sent him, the Father. If you reject Jesus, I'm assuming you reject the Father. I'm going to just tell you that we are living in a country that I love so desperately, but we are rejecting Jesus. We are rejecting God. And, it, and, it, and it's most notable to be able to see it when we reject children and the, and the gift that God has given to us. So there's a priority. There's an argument, there's an attitude, and there's a priority, and with this I end. What is heaven's priority? It's found in that little tiny three-letter word says for. It's between whoever receives this child in my name receives me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me, and then there's this little word, for. It's a connecting thought. The one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. The argument was, who's greatest? Jesus doesn't say, who's greatest? He says, who is great? The greatest person in the room that day was not Peter, it was not James, it was not John. It was none of the disciples who were arguing. The greatest person in the room that day was Jesus, obviously. But what did the greatest person in the room explain is actually heaven's priority. He said, what you look at on the earth as least, I'm telling you, heaven looks at it and says, that is the greatest thing. The greatest priority isn't the least, well, the greatest priority is the thing that you consider the least priority. The least thing that you think is a priority is the greatest priority. Can I just be meddlesome for a moment? And we know that this is a pervasive thing. It's difficult because like in the church setting and world, I want to say it this way, you know, it's not the pastor who's the greatest. It's not the musicians who's the greatest. It's not the elders who are the greatest. I love each and every one of them. But I'm telling you that according to Jesus, the greatest person in the room is the one that you think is the least great. 
And I'm going to just tell you, I've been around a lot of churches, and, and there has never been an abundance of children's workers, children's ministry, children's helpers, or anything like that. Because what we end up doing is looking at children as something that needs to be managed while the important people do the important things. So in other words, we are negating or we are neglecting to our shame and to our, our not only guilt, but it's, it's having a cause and effect and an impact because if the church doesn't put a priority on the children, the world certainly is not going to. So when, when people walk in the door and they feel love, that, that's wonderful. When they feel God's love, that's wonderful. When they feel your love, that's expected. But when, when they feel the love that we have for those who are the least important in this world or this day and the age. So all we have to, I mean, we can add to that list, you know, people who are disabled, people who are infirmed, people who are not capable, people who are elderly. And uh, my, my former pastor, the one that sent us to, to start this whole thing, he, he doesn't know his son because of dementia. He doesn't know we're in the middle of a pandemic. This man was one of the greatest men that I have ever heard. One of the most wonderful pastors and well-rounded human beings I've ever met. And he doesn't have cognitive skills or functions anymore. He has to be taken care of. There was a time when he stood and held a microphone as I stand here today and he had an impact on people and and Judy and I are certainly, my mom, we are certainly recipients of that ministry. But today he is considered considerably less important. Not because a younger man is more capable, not because younger family, but because he's lost his cognitive skills. Which actually concerns me on a daily basis about myself. I just really want my heart to be exposed to Jesus right now so that I can understand that heaven's priority is not the same as the earth's. Through the prophet, he said a long time ago, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Would you please stand up with me? My purpose today, brothers and sisters, is to call the church, the whole church, to adopt Jesus Christ's heart for children. Namely, that those whom society regards as least important would become of the greatest priority to Not only Christ and his kingdom, but they would become of greatest priority to us. What must we do? We've got to repent and we've got to reimagine things as heaven sees them. We must learn to value what heaven values. And we've got to learn to set aside the things that the world... I'm just going to tell you that... In a Facebook world, in a social media frenzy, 
people become celebrities overnight on the earth. But looking from heaven, people become celebrities overnight as well because God sees the heart that is mending the hurting, the heart that is lifting a child, the heart that is nurturing and encouraging children, teenagers. Heaven sees those who cherish what it cherishes. My spirit, I just hear this like, I wonder how heaven responds to the church right now when we say 48 million babies aborted. It's like, that's just ridiculous and we need to do something about it. And I just hear heaven saying, but what about the children that, that survived? What about the children I did give you? What about the children that you do have? What about the children at your feet? What about the children within your reach? What about the children that you can't quite reach? 48 million babies short-circuited right into heaven. And they're okay. But if I can be a voice today, let me just say it to you this way. When I'm pastoring people, and I've got a mom, i got a dad, oftentimes, counseling, we're encouraging, we're trying to help build something and help reignite something, you know. Judy will be my witness that there's often times when I'll raise my hand and I'll say, listen, it is my role to speak for the children because no one in this room is considering them right now. In your decision, no one. And so it's my job, it's my job to remind you that there are children and whatever you decide today is going to impact them positively or negatively. So I speak for the children. And I'm here asking today, is there anyone else who will join me and speak for the children? I'm not talking about some kind of feel-good movement that might have a lot of fanfare and Facebook likes and shares. I'm talking about would there be people who say, look, excuse me, this may be none of my business, but I feel like I need to say something for the children right now. I just feel that we're missing something. I feel that we're neglecting something. This is a great church. It's really, really easy in a great church to think that we do that well. And I think we do it pretty well. But it's also really, really easy to get sloppy. And so I'm going to ask you today, for the children, 
that are unborn, that's just a whole nother thing. But for the children at your feet, for the children within your reach, and those that are out of the reach, would you become a voice today? Would you and I let the Spirit of God commission us to be a voice for the children, to see that they're protected, all of them protected? didn't even get a chance to go into the statistics of abuse and neglect and sexual assault and it's just sometimes too painful to talk about but I've prepared some materials on the back table again you can take a look at it and see for yourself the statistics they're, they're horrible pandemic has made it worse Cornerstone Fellowship, there's one thing that we could do for Walt Hoffman in his memory today would be that we would pledge ourselves to be a voice for children. Father, I pray in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ that as you begin this process of leading us by the hand, turning the tables right side up, In this upside-down world, making things right, upright. Father, I pray that you would commission us to go into this world and to be a voice for the children, where we protect the children, all of the children. We protect them all. We protect them all. We protect them all that's you this morning and your heart is somehow pricked by something that pricked my heart so many years ago just raise a hand to Jesus and say Lord today here am I I'll be a voice for the children I will be a voice for children you give me the grace I'll speak up would you give me You alert my attention when you give me an assignment by the grace of God. I will be the voice for children to protect them, to stand for them, to stand with them. So that we might begin to honor those that we often think are least. And I just feel so compelled to say that babies turn into toddlers and toddlers turn into teenagers and when they were so little they were so cute but when they're so big they're so difficult can't stop speaking for children just become it because it becomes hard just because it becomes difficult if it's right it's right do it anyways Black and white, we're all precious in his sight.